Welcome back to another episode of the Corporate Cowboys podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and this is season seven, episode eight, as we read chapter eight of The Naked Corporation, How the Age of Transparency Will Revolutionize Business. The authors of this are Don Tapscott and David T. Cole. Let's just dive right in then. Chapter 8's title is The Owners of the Firm. From its early days in the 19th century, the New York Stock Exchange was the financial center of U.S. capitalism. Backroom deals, gambling, fraud, and self-dealing were rampant. <laughs> exchange members em- em- enjoyed the exchange members enjoyed lower trading rates than non-members. Share prices were rarely made known to the public or the press until Dow Jones founded the Wall Street Journal in 1889, where the Dow Jones index ran on a daily basis from 19 sorry from 1896. Most financial newspapers were paid mouthpieces for stock promoters. This practice ended only after the 1929 crash. Transparency would only happen as a result of aggressive state intervention. No one knew how much financier J.P. Morgan was at the center of the banking and commercial world until a 1912 congressional investigation revealed that he and a dozen partners held 72 interlocking dictatorships in 47 major corporations. In total, the officers of the Morgan and just three other banks held 341 dictatorships in 112 corporations with resources of $22 billion, which exceeded the assessed value of all property in the 22 states and territories west of the Mississippi. In congressional testimony, Morgan denied knowledge of his own connections and dealings. Until that moment of transparency and even afterward, Morgan and his partners denied the existence of a money trust. It took the worst business collapse in modern history, the Great Depression, to force transparency into the broader financial marketplace. The Securities Act of 1933 was the first piece of national securities legislation passed by Congress. During the previous two decades, some 20 states had passed a patchwork of so-called blue sky laws to regulate the issuance of securities, but these were rife with loopholes. U.S. financial markets in both banking and securities operated pretty much free of regulation and visibility until Franklin Roosevelt stepped in. The act required sellers to register new securities and supporting information with the Federal Trade Commission. Issuers of foreign bonds, also the subject of various fraudulent schemes, were required to do the same. Next, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 created the Securities and Exchange Commission. For the first time, investment bankers were accountable to a government agency. Again, transparency was central. Any company or investment banker who made a false filing with the SEC would face prosecution. 
all publicly traded companies would henceforth be required to register and provide quarterly and annual financial reports. To gain the right to register newly issued shares of other companies, investment banks would also have to provide financial information about themselves. This was revolutionary since most companies from the house of Morgan on down had never published annual reports. The underlying structural issue was the separation of ownership from control. This began with the capitalization of railways in the 19th century and became dominant across most industries in the 1920s. Adolf A. Burl and Gardiner C. Means first analyzed this change in 1933. As joint stock companies grew and investors traded shares with one another, the stock market took on a life of its own. Thousands, then hundreds of thousands of individuals bought shares. By and large, no individual owned even 1% of any one company. As a result, shareholders as a class became weak, while managers inside the firm took control. Beryl and Means explained the resulting risk for shareholders. Quote, the controlling group can serve their own pockets better by profiting at the expense of the company than by making profits for it. <laughs> and, and these motherfuckers in corporate, just a side comment, these motherfuckers in corporate claim that the profit motive is to create value for their shareholders. Get the fuck out of here. If you know corporate, you know dirt. And if you know dirt, I think you'll do well in corporate. <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. If you didn't know, I'll be providing commentary as we read along. But I'll try not to interrupt as much. I mean, this is the Corporate Cowboys podcast, right? So while this is free, you'll have to deal with the opinions and the comments that uh, that come with, with the audiobook, essentially. The act, uh, hold on, where do we go? This core problem has played out ever since. In theory, the managers of the booming 1950s and 1960s cared about shareholders. After all, they measured their success in rising share prices, but the practicalities of shareholder accountability were absent. Peter Drucker in 1974 worried that boards have become, quote, a fiction, Either simply manage, they are either simply management committees controlled by inside directors, or they are ineffectual. <laughs> either way, they're ineffectual, right? So they're gonna be on paper. They're gonna read as if you know they're a committee and they've got some power. They've got some executive authority, some executive power. But in actuality, they are both controlled by inside directors and ineffectual. So. They're not. They ain't shit. They ain't shit. He listed, continuing, he listed three causes which ring true today. The dispersion of share ownership, the fundamental cause, the separation of ownership and control, the result, and the fact that top management doesn't want a truly effective board. You don't fucking say. Okay. A block quote here. It says, an effective board asks inconvenient questions. An effective board demands top management's performance and removes top executives who do not perform adequately. 
This is its duty. An effective board insists on being informed before the event. This is its legal responsibility. An effective board will not unquestioningly accept the recommendations of top management, but will want but will want to know why. An effective board, in other words, insists on being effective. And this, to most top managements, appears to be a restraint, a limitation, an interference with management's prerogatives. <laughs> prerogatives. And altogether a threat. You don't fucking say. You mean to tell me that when managers have managers, they feel threatened? No, what? All right, so so it's like you're doing dirt, right? And you're getting away. You're being just a corrupt, just utterly corrupt motherfucker. Any oversight and how you conduct your corruption is going to get under your skin. You're going to want to eliminate it. So these, <laughs> these effective boards, they'll, they'll just start installing clowns and yes men. Because they want to do whatever the fuck it is they want to do. And they don't want to be held accountable for anything that they do. On top of that, they can hide behind the legal fiction that the corporation essentially shields them from any personal liability. Even though they've drawn a lot, excessive even, personal benefit from the corporation itself. It's sad. It's sad, but corporate is what corporate does. That's why you have corporate cowboys. Continuing, shareholders who took issue with this, sorry, shareholders who took issue with any of this could only, quote, vote with their feet and sell their shares. Management tightly choreographed annual meetings and shareholder ballots. The typical shareholder didn't care since... He, typically male at the time, was but one of millions of unrelated small holding speculators. He didn't want to be bothered about corporate governance. As long as his shares went up, he was happy. Opacity was A-OK. -okay. Shareholders who took issue with any of this could only... Oh, I already, I already read that. <laughs> In the 19th... Uh, the reason I went back up to read it is because it struck a chord. I mean, that's the way corporate operates today. It's the way corporate operates today. Usually the largest shareholders essentially dictate what the directors are going to say. It's all scripted. It's all scripted for the sake of appearance, for the sake of corporate minutes. There's a whole podcast episode on it. Go listen to it. I think it's in season three, if I'm not mistaken. It's in season three. Season three or four, one of the two. Shit, it could even be two. You, look, go start at season one, episode one, and then continue from there. In the 1970s, U.S. management's practices were shaken by stagflation and the stunning rise of Japanese competitors. Despite books on the Japanese way, it was impossible for Western firms to emulate Japan's complex webs of interrelationships, not least because of their opacity. Their credibility again falling into disarray, U.S. firms paid dearly for their lack of transparency and accountability in the corporate raids of the 1980s and the business re-engineering craze at the turn of the 1990s. Driving this event were two additional structural shifts. First, 
It was a new industrial revolution, a demanding, innovation-centric economy made possible by information and communications technologies. Second was the rise of investor capitalism, shareholders including institutional investors and market players, such as the corporate raiders of the 1980s and the venture capitalists of the 1990s, challenging the separation of ownership and control. The merger and acquisition M&A boom of the 1980s was a forced shakeout of the excess capacity and bureaucratic inefficiencies of managerial capitalism. There were 35,000 M&A transactions between 1976 and 1990 with a total value of 3. Point, sorry, 2 2.6 trillion dollars in 1992 dollars at least. Many described the boom, along with some huge payouts that went with it, as a greedy maneuver by corporate barbarians who sucked innovation and investment out of the economy, degraded the country's competitiveness, and destroyed the lives of hundreds of thousands of terminated employees. Critics attacked exotic techniques such as leveraged buyouts and junk bonds, which eliminated size as a barrier against takeover and let non-establishment foxes into the corporate chicken coop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you have enough, not, not even clout, really, if you have the right representation and you're able to hustle correctly, any nobody can become a somebody, even people who aren't backed by the establishment. This was pretty evident in the 2016, 2016 elections, right? Where a nobody who just threw their name up onto places became a somebody. <laughs> and that can be done through the information, like now through the information age. What was it again? Information and communications technologies. Yeah. Social media does a lot of that. Social media makes plenty of stupid people famous. <laughs> Continuing. Many described the boom. Bah, 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 bah. La, 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 la. Continuing. Certainly, certainly, corporate raiders made tons of money while loyal employees lost jobs, paying dearly for a situation few of them created. But underlying all of the fire and fury, investors were finally doing more than voting with their feet. Corporate raiders and institutional investors reasserted the right of shareholders to have a say in the fate of the firm. Business visibility increased dramatically as players' failings, inefficiencies, maneuvers, and self-dealings were scrutinized as never before. Eventually, a new consensus urged that the continuous bloodletting had to stop. It was, as some put it mildly, quote, too disruptive. By the early 1990s, the M&A boom was over. The corporate and fiduciary communities reached a new consensus, accountability to investors, and particularly large-term investors like pension funds, would be better served through ongoing oversight by management and directors within the firm and institutional investors outside of the firm. Corporate governance activities, rather than battles over corporate control, would become the norm. 
Then, in the exuberance of the dot-com boom, the expected oversight failed to happen. The result? The 2002 corporate governance crisis. Fam, this shit is nothing new. It's just promise on top of promise on top of promise on top of 2002 on top of 2008 on top of 2016 on top of 2020. Fam, it's a never-ending story of corporate fuckery. That's why if you don't know you're being played, now you know. And if you don't know how to play, you need to know. Corporate cowboys for life, man. I mean, it's capitalism till I die, right? But you have to think like a corporate cowboy. (laughs) Eventually, a new consensus emerged. I've already read that. The internet bubble lubricated the core. The internet bubble lubricated the governance crisis, most visibly in the case of Enron. By diverting attention from old-fashioned standards of profitability and governance amid hype about new rules for a new economy, but crooked dealings at accounting firms, multi-billion dollar write-downs at over 150 companies, and conflicts of interest at securities firms can't be blamed on the internet. In April 2003, 10 Wall Street firms agreed to split penalties totaling $1.4 billion, a relatively painless outcome considering how they vaporized the integrity of core processes at the heart of market capitalism. Yeah, dog, I'm surprised no heads literally rolled. No, no literal heads rolled? Yeah, I'm surprised nobody got fucking off. I mean, maybe somebody got off, but more than likely they were low-level analysts, whistleblowers, (laughs) you know, dogs eating dogs type shit. (laughs) That's some some corporate cowboy shit, man. For corporate, uh, continuing, for corrupt practices like publishing falsely favorable analyst reports, sending clients advanced copies of analyst reports, and using shares of hot initial public offerings to virtually bribe CEOs of client firms, the brokerages avoided admissions of guilt while their executives escaped criminal prosecution. Some 40% of the fines were mitigated by tax deductibility or insurance, and as The Economist observed, the entire amount is equivalent to a few days' collective profits and a tiny percentage of what the firms earned during the boom. The two entities that should have been policing these firms, the New York Stock Exchange and the National Association of Securities Dealers, also escaped censure. Censure means penalty, means that they weren't fucking flamed in public. You know why? Well... I don't know. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you make an educated guess as to why the New York Stock Exchange and the National Association of Securities Dealers. I mean, it's an it's a it's an association of dealers. You feel me? And if they have a board, it's a board of dealers. <laughs> it's like the police investigating themselves. What the fuck are they gonna do? What the fuck are you gonna do? So. Investors' lawsuits, investors' civil suits were bound to follow, right? Continuing. Ultimately, the bubble merely exacerbated the perennial problem. That is the separation of control. No, no, the separation of ownership from control. When there is personal gain at stake, 
Too many corporate executives tune their values to rationalize malfeasance. Transparency proved to be a constructive force. Whistleblowers came forward against Enron, Anderson, WorldCom, and others. The media delivered the story. Institutional investors like CalPERS pressured Congress to act and tightened up their own operating guidelines. Investors pulled out of the markets. This resulted in a massive value collapse and sent a clear signal that visible change was a matter of urgency. Many companies began to rethink and revise their governance. The history of the past century shows that the transparency-driven surge of powerful market forces is not sufficient to change corporate behavior. As a matter of economic necessity, many firms may embrace norms of candor and integrity that exceed minimum legal requirements, but free riders will take advantage of the system as long as the legal umbrella protects them. And many, as we've seen, are quite willing to break the law. You see, they're willing, like they know the shit's illegal and they're willing to do it. They give no fucks and have zero qualms about it. They will fuck you over and laugh in your face while they do it. I mean, you have you, you have to level up, honestly. If you, the listener, me, the reader, you, the listener, have to level up. Be the corporate cowboy <laughs> you want to see in the world. <laughs> thus, continuing, thus... Free markets need strong governments. Ah, you see, you see this, that type of language is where the book loses me, but fuck it. I'll continue for the sake of, for the sake of thoroughness, for the sake of integrity. I'll read it to you. Thus, free markets need strong governments. Okay. Public interests are greater than the sum of private interests and open market economies depend on clear rules, rigorously enforced. The next subheading here, who owns the corporation? The last few decades have produced five dramatic changes in corporate ownership. First, stock market ownership. Sorry, no, no, no. First, stock ownership has become the dominant form of liquid wealth. That's equities, bonds, and cash, which itself is growing rapidly. The world's trove of liquid financial assets grew sevenfold between 1980 and 2000 from 11 trillion to 78 trillion of this equities grew from 25% of the pot to 40% since the 2001 market crash many investors have shifted some of their holdings to bonds and other less risky assets however this is a small blip in a big picture trend The historic shift to equities means that a greater proportion of society is betting on corporate ownership to build wealth. (laughs) You mean like the small, like the little people, they're betting on them owning a piece of this to, to get, to get wealthy. If they are, they are sorely, sorely misinformed because at any point, at any point in time, legally, they could dilute your shares. They could reduce your, um, your your proportion of ownership in an organization essentially fucking you over hanging you out to dry right because this profit motive that they claim they have for their shareholders does not actually exist we've said it time and time again shit is just lip service they're out to make money for themselves 
As for you, nah, nah. I mean, they, they might bump your stock up a couple pennies and maybe with generations, you could call it generational wealth. If it goes up a couple pennies or a couple dollars every year, right? And you might believe, oh, this is this is a really good a return because it's going up. It's not going down over time. But I mean, if you can't live to enjoy it in your lifetime, if you can't live to enjoy it in your lifetime, which is possible, it is financially possible, but some motherfuckers just choose to bottleneck the process. Some motherfuckers just choose to bottleneck innovation so nobody else can enjoy it. If you cannot live to enjoy it, what are you doing really, man? What are you doing really? What's the point of improving yourself if you can't improve the situation that you're in? I mean, that's why that's why I chose to become a corporate cowboy because I know that by improving myself, it increases my chances of not only identifying opportunities for improvement, but creating opportunities for improvement. And that's going to be situationally in, in my life, in my corner of the world. <laughs> continuing, continuing. Second, stock is owned increasingly by institutions. In capitalism's earlier days, tycoons and silk hats owned the firms. As recently as the early 1970s, a relatively small number of individuals still owned almost 80% of U.S. equities. Today, institutions are the primary owners of the corporation. Pension funds, mutual funds, insurance companies, other institutional investors, and a broad range of individuals own or manage most public equity. In 1987, institutions held an average of 47% of the total stock in the largest 1,000 U.S. corporations. That figure had soared to 60% by 1997, and by 2003, it had risen to 64%. In 1987, only 4%, only 4, sorry, only 4 of the largest 1,000 companies had institutional ownership in excess of 90%. Today, there are over 60 such companies. In 1987, 45% of companies had institutional ownership of 50% or more, but today, the number is greater than 66%. Today, there are more mutual funds than publicly traded companies. Imagine that. And yo, more power to them because they're negotiating in a group, right? So that means that they can buy in a group. They've got a more weight to throw around. I've got nothing against it. I've got nothing I've got nothing against moving collectively. But there is a difference. There is a difference between moving competitively and moving confrontationally or moving um what's the term I'm looking for? I don't know, moving like a fucking cocksucker. <laughs> Yeah, there is a difference. There is a difference between doing business right and fucking up the bag. There really is. Continuing. Third, pension funds, which invest pension savings on behalf of employees of corporations, government agencies, and other organizations, and which are to be withdrawn on retirement, are the largest group of institutional investors. 
Pension funds grew from 32.5% of all institutional assets, that's $868 billion, in 1980 to 41.5%, that's $7.87 trillion, with a T, in 2001. During that period, mutual funds also grew dramatically, while assets owned by banks and trust companies declined from 399 to 2.7%. Internationally, pension funds own over $12 trillion in assets. It says see figure 8.2. Yeah, it's about time I tell you what figure 8.2. There's figure 8.1 and 8.2. I'll tell you about figure 8.1 real quick. I'll describe it for you. It is a bar graph. And this bar graph on the y-axis says percentage from 0 to 60%. 0 at the bottom, 60 at the top. And then along the x-axis, it has dates. And it goes on a scale of, um, damn, just random ass, just random ass uh, dates. But that's good because it doesn't require continuity. It goes from 1950 to 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990, 1995, 1999. That's where it becomes weird, right? 2000, 2001, 2003. So, like, there really isn't a whole lot of continuity as far as uh, the, the, the space what is it? The spacing in time, but you don't need it for this, for a bar graph of this type. Figure 8.1, this bar graph is titled institutional investor holdings of total outstanding equity from 1950 to 2003. Essentially what that means is the percentage of all, I guess, securities, security backed equities, equity backed securities, (laughs) equity percentages of equities in companies right as it pertains to ownership and control what is the percentage of those that exist out there that are are held that are held by institutions that is by other holding companies other corporations uh large money funds you know mutual funds that sort of thing so in 1950 it was less than 10 in 1960 it was less than 20 1970, still less than 20. 1980, less than 40. 1990, less than 50. And then from 1990 on, it just goes upward. And it ends you know, at a little less than 60%. But it just goes to show that over time, money has pulled together in order to buy more money, if that makes sense, in order to buy more power. Power has become... Has, power has been... I guess it's buying power or acquisition power has been pulling in these pools of institutions for some time now. And now the majority, the majority of equity out there is held and controlled by money groups. Figure 8.2 called percentage of institutional assets by category. Percentage of institutional assets by category. And it's gonna say uh, essentially, the uh, this is a, a line, a line graph, so a line chart, and there's different types of lines. So some are solid, some are dashed, some are like polka dotted, some have like boxes and squares on them to uh, differentiate which ones they belong to, right? So there's pension funds, mutual funds. I'm not going to describe the lines for you because I feel like I would take more time than necessary. I mean, this is a 2002 book. I just want you to get a rough idea because the information in 2002 does not directly translate to what's happening in 2023. 
sorry about that, does not directly translate to what's happening in 2023. So I'll just let you know that a lot, most, most of the lines here have an upward trajectory, except for bank and trust companies. So the y-axis is labeled percentage of total assets, and the x-axis is labeled the year, and the years go from 1980 to 2001 at the end. So keep in mind that most of these have an upward trajectory, except for what is it? Banks and bank and trust companies and insurance companies. So uh, where was I? Pension funds, continuing. Pension funds own 13% of Microsoft, about the same as Bill Gates. 18% of IBM, 18% of GE, 19% of Exxon, 20% of AT&T, and 45% of British Telecom. Many pension funds are huge. The GE fund has five has five has $59 billion in assets. Texas Teachers Retirement, $70 billion. General Motors, $87 billion. New York State Common Retirement Fund, $100 billion. California Public Employees Retirement, $133 billion. And the Stitching Pension Funds, ABP, that's a Netherlands uh, pension fund, $160 billion. Pension funds are now the principal owners of the U.S. economy. I suppose that's good, right? Because folks need a pension out sometime. I want to say that's all right, right? But keep in mind that pension funds still have a board of directors, still have a board of directors. Pension funds are still corporations. (laughs) So what the fuck do you think is happening behind closed doors? Continuing, continuing. Many pension funds say... They lack the expertise or resources to manage their own investments. That's funny. So they hire others to make their day-to-day investment decisions. That's funny. Assigning substantial amounts of their assets to other fiduciaries, such as money managers, insurance companies, and banks. In 2001, pension funds held 41.5% of total institutional investor assets, but managed only 21.1%, about half. This passive approach undermines their influence to make companies to make, hold on, this passive approach undermines their influence to make companies transparent and accountable to shareholders. Fourth, the number of Americans owning stock has soared during the past four decades. Today, more than half of all U.S. households own company shares or units of mutual funds. Direct and indirect stock holdings as a share of family assets has jumped from 34% in 1992 to more than 56% today. Many millions of U.S. families have a big stake in the stock market and how it performs, even though the average direct holdings per family amounts to only $6,000. The same household directly owns about 77, the same household indirectly owns about $77,000 of stock 
through pension funds alone. This pension fund revolution, as Peter Drucker, as Peter Drucker aptly called it in 1976, has given, has today given upward. How am I fucking up on this one sentence, man? Come on. This quote pension fund revolution, as Peter Drucker aptly called it in 1976, has today given upward of 100 million Americans a personal interest in the stock market and the performance of corporations worldwide. Their increased de- dependence on capital markets has affected other aspects of their lives, notably their retirement planning, job satisfaction, and productivity in the workplace. They think of themselves as investors. If they own stock or options in the company they work for, they are better motivated to do a good job and they tend to identify more strongly with their company. And in light of the post-technology meltdown, many of them paid close attention to the impact of the bear market on the erosion of wealth in their retirement portfolios. Now, before I skip over, there is a uh, another figure here on the opposite page. It's called figure 8.3. I don't know why it hasn't been mentioned yet in the reading, but uh, will it be mentioned? I'm just looking, scanning ahead quick. No. What the fuck? All right. So figure 8.3. Let me just describe it for you real quick. It's titled figure 8.3. Concentration of institutional investor holdings of the 25 largest corporations ranked according to market capitalization. So it's literally just a list with the names on the left-hand side and uh, percentage uh, percentage totals on the right-hand side. The right-hand side is listed, uh, is named the percentage of total shares held by institutional investors. So essentially what this means is, and by the way, I'll tell you right now that every company on this list, let me see, what's the what's the least number here? Every company on their list, on this list here has at least, at least, so it only goes up from here, has at least 40% of its shares, 40% of its stock, right? That's 40% of its equity held by other corporations. So, I mean, if if you don't see this giant fucking circle jerk for what it is in corporate, I mean, as far as it comes to, uh, to, to the leader, to the quote leadership, to management, if you don't see the circle jerk for what it is, you're lost fam. You're lost. I mean, I, I, it, it behooves you to learn to become a corporate cowboy and not depend on playing the stock market, right? Because few get lucky. Few will get lucky, right? And then they think they have some sort of magical formula for it because they got lucky once or twice or three times. It does not matter how lucky you get. You cannot predict. I mean, maybe you could predict how the leadership will go, but you cannot predict how the price of shares will be affected, right? Because these these folks make moves independently of public opinion, independently of public sentiment. So just be mindful of it. The 25 top companies here, I'll just read them off real quick. I'll rattle them off. General Electric, Microsoft, Pfizer, ExxonMobil. Damn, Pfizer's number three. It was number three in 2002. Wow. Uh, Pfizer, ExxonMobil, Citigroup, Walmart Stores, Intel, American International Group, Merck, IBM, 
Cisco Systems, SBC Communications, Johnson & Johnson, Verizon Communications, Coca-Cola, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Philip Morris, Oracle, Home Depot, Time Warner, Procter & Gamble, Eli Lilly, EMC, AT&T, and Wells Fargo. All right. And the average, mind you, the average at the very, that's funny. It actually averages them out at the very bottom. The total for all companies, the average, the average total is 63.4%. So that's the average, definitely more than 40%. Am I right? Or am I right? Continuing then, an additional trend is causing pension holders to care. The historic shift toward defined contribution plans. Hold on. Yeah, contribution plans where the individual takes a higher risk and has a higher upside or downside. Defined benefit plans, as the name implies, specify the level of benefits to be received by the employee on retirement. Defined contribution plans, again, like the name, specify the level of contribution, but not the amount of benefit payments. Thus, they offer less security with greater potential upside reward and greater potential downside risk. The number of employees in these plans now exceed the number in defined benefit plans by 10 to 1. Fifth, notwithstanding the broader distribution of share ownership, there is no universal democratization of wealth in the United States, as some have suggested. According to one authoritative investigation, over the last decade, the share of all wealth held by the top 1% rose by 5 percentage points, while the share held by the bottom 40% showed an absolute decline. The greatest change, however, is not that the top quintile is getting marginally more of the pie, but that there is a super rich elite that is getting richer faster than the regular rich and everyone else. Within the top 20% of money makers, the biggest beneficiaries were the top 5%. According to an extensive study by Thomas Piketty or Piketty and Emmanuel Saez, Saez, in 1970, the top 0.01% of taxpayers had 0.7% of total income. That is, they earned 70 times as much as the average. But in 1998, the top 0.01% received more than 3% of all the income. That meant that the 13,000 richest families in the United States had almost as much income as the 20 million poorest households. Those 13,000 families had incomes 300 times that of average families. That, that ought to give you an idea, just a quick comment. That ought to give you an idea of how rare, how rare it is to be that lucky. And that's luck on top of insider trading, on top of corruption, on top of just outlandish fuckery, right? To be lucky, that's luck. These motherfuckers are living on credit. 
So, I mean, so if you ever come across, and I mean, a, a lot of them still remain humble, right? A lot of them still live humbly, and that's why they can pass it down generationally. But if you ever meet somebody who's acting out of pocket for being rich, it's up to you to, uh, I don't know, be their luck. <laughs> that's some corporate cowboy shit, man. This change has led many, such as liberal critic Paul Krugman, to conclude that there is a crisis of inequality in the United States. I wouldn't say it's a fucking crisis just yet, right? I wouldn't say it's a crisis just... I mean, we li- we are not literally eating the rich. That That's when you know it would be a crisis. If they control as much as it's reported, right? If they do control the media, then you would see in the media just, muff- just uncut raw... Film uncut raw video of rich motherfuckers being eight of of just the purge happening in real time. No, the the BLM protests and riots and all this other bullshit that doesn't count. That does not count. The uh, the uh, what is it? The Occupy Wall Street bullshit. That none of that fucking counts. None of it counts until you see until you see that uncut shit, that uncut Vietnam shit before it was censored. <laughs> before it was censored, so that. People were were less desensitized, and so people became more sensitive, right? So now any little fucking bullshit that they put on mainstream media, people are, are hypersensitive about it, and they think the world is falling apart. You have no fucking idea. You have no fucking clue. If you are desensitized to a lot of this bullshit, desensitized in a healthy way, right? I sound crazy saying it, but I only sound like it. I'm not crazy. If you are desensitized to the fuckery in a healthy way, in a healthy, productive way, then when the media throws out, I don't know, some folks call them false flags. I just call it bullshit, right? When they air bullshit on the news, on on, on late night, on C-SPAN, just on, on these channels, you'll you'll be able to see through it. You'll be able to see through it. But it ain't until you actually see, you know, motherfuckers getting turned on spits over open fires (laughs) and not even being eaten really because at that point folks ain't gonna be hungry they're gonna be fucking starving for blood and all they'll want is blood they ain't really gonna be eating come on you want crisis you want in a crisis folks act irrationally they ain't even eating they they give a fuck about surviving they give a fuck about (laughs) self-preservation he's never been in a fucking crisis all right here we go continuing uh this change has led many such as liberal democrat whatever the fuck paul krugman liberal liberal critic paul krugman to conclude that there is a crisis of inequality and he includes a a block quote they include a block quote from him it says this really rich getting even richer transformation has happened very quickly and it is still going on you might think that 1987 the year tom wolf published his novel the bonfire of the vanities and oliver stone released his movie wall street marked the high tide of america's new money culture but in 1987 the top 0.1% earned only about 40% of what they do today and top executives less than a fifth as much. The America of Wall Street and the bonfire of the vanities 
was positively egalitarian compared with the country we live in today. Really? You think so? <laughs> you fucking think so? <laughs> Yo, talk about just just hyping up. Talk about just just hype. I mean, again, I appreciate the book for what it's doing. I appreciate the free press for what it's doing, right? But as a corporate cowboy, I got to point out bullshit where I see it. I'm just calling it like I see it. This book, at some points, perpetuates victimization. So you're left feeling like the top 0.1% are always out to fuck me. Nah, nah. If I'm sleeping when I shouldn't be, then they're working when, when I should be, if that makes any sense. And notice how I didn't say they're fucking me over, right? Because there might be, like, there might be, right? I'm still giving them the benefit of the doubt that they could just be outright gangsters and thugs and not give a fuck about humanity. But they themselves are human, right? And if they aren't living in a crisis, they're, they're more than likely living very calmly, living in the, in, what is it? Living for their best life, essentially. Li- living in God's plan for their life and not even not really worried about what it is I'm doing so they're not worried about taking money out of my pocket and for the most part more than likely more than likely doing it legally again I'm not I'm not discounting my position in life and I'm definitely not reducing myself as what a, a peon or a wagey a wage slave of sorts not at all I'm a corporate cowboy they are six degrees of separation away from me. That's nothing. Now, at this point, I don't have much to offer. I mean, I've always got something to offer. Whether or not they will look my way, I mean, it's up to them. And whether or not they think like a corporate cowboy, because again, high risk, high reward. I get it. I'm a risky investment. I'm a risk. I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sure investment. It is an investment of some kind, but there is always risk in any investment, no matter how safe. That's why I don't think security actually exists. I just say it's risk. It's always risk. Even if the risk is minute, that is a risky investment. I mean, you talk about luck, you got to make it yourself. Some folks call that dirty luck, but I'm going on a rant. I'm, you know, I, I digress. I digress. Returning, returning. Uh, Oh, yeah, that was a close quote, too. I was just commenting on Paul Krugman's quote. Continuing, this situation makes the country vulnerable to increased conflict between two classes of shareholders, those who own massive wealth and those who own little, exacerbating demands for transparency and accountability. These five trends have set the stage for a new wave of transparency. The 2001 stock market collapse and the crisis in corporate governance have hurt funds' ability to meet their liabilities and created a crisis of trust. Some funds have been pushing on these issues for years. They gained an opening thanks to the crisis. Moreover, a greater proportion of the population than ever before wants to know more about companies because they are shareholders. Many invest through so-called socially responsible investing funds, SRIs, which are much more active than the typical mutual fund. In theory, business operation is the job of corporate executives, 
while ensuring transparency and accountability to shareholders is the job of the board. In practice, however, too many boards are simply extensions of management. You, you don't fucking say. <laughs> the result, investors own and managers control. And there is no substantive communication between the two. If investors are unhappy, their only effective option is to vote with their feet and sell their shares. It comes full circle, and it's a vicious one at that. The next little subheading here, what do shareholders know? (laughs) Although there is still considerable opacity in capital markets, the internet gives shareholders unprecedented access to information and lets them share this information with one another. Unfortunately, much of this information is neither readily available to the average person nor particularly trustworthy or useful. You don't fucking say. Savvy observers in Enron chat groups nailed the company's weaknesses long before it collapsed. James Felton, associate professor of finance at Central Michigan University and Zhang, Zhang Chai Kim, assistant professor of finance at Xavier University of Louisiana, examined hundreds of thousands of anonymous listings on the Enron message boards on Yahoo Finance. The two discovered damning and surprisingly detailed allegations about Enron's finances apparently posted by frustrated company insiders. No way. On March 1st, on March 1, 2000, When Enron was trading at $68, a posting by Arthur86Please warned, quote, dig deep behind the Enron financials and you'll see a growing mountain of off-balance sheet debt, which will eventually swallow this company. There is a reason why they layer so many subsidiaries and affiliates. Be careful. Earlier, on June 17, 1998, Janice Joplin 298 wrote that Enron's financial structure was deceptively complex. Enron, quote, could just as easily bring greater shareholder value by simplifying its capital structure and clearly articulating its deals. Felton and Kim conclude that far from being useless sources of information, Stock message boards contain better information than is widely believed. This may be true, but how do individual stockholders sort out the wheat from the chaff? In this case, tens of thousands of breathlessly positive opinions about Enron. The problem is that chat rooms are just another side of shareholder opacity. Most shareholders, especially the 100 million or so small shareholders operating in the marketplace through retirement and mutual funds, don't even know what companies their fiduciaries have invested in. Economists call this a cascading agency problem, where in this case, the individual shareholder is several times removed from the action invested through pension funds that invest through managed through money more I messed that one up. I'll start over. I got distracted. Economists call this cast call this <laughs> Come on, Alex. Come on, Alex. 
Investments call this a cascading agency problem, where in this case, the individual shareholder is several times removed from the action invested through pension funds that invest through money managers who in turn depend on company boards of directors to oversee the CEO and his or her subordinates. They may learn of individual holdings at the end of the quarter, the year, or not at all. Further, few individual retail shareholders have time, competency, or attention to track corporate performance. Even if they did, they are not privy to the real story. None of the 2001-2002 scandals started with shareholder-originated information. Finally, many pension and mutual funds are indexed to the S&P 500 and other major indices. As a result, their shareholders have even less of a stake in the success of any one company. Instead, they put their faith in the economy and stock market as a whole. It is institutions, not individuals, that have or should have the tools, resources, access, and clout in the battle that has evolved between the forces of transparency and the forces of opacity. However, passive funds, in particular those that rely on indexing, don't have advantage of this power. Don't, sorry, no, I messed that one up. However, passive funds, particularly, I messed that up again. However, passive funds, in particular, those that rely, in particular, in particular, how am I messing that up? In particular. However, passive funds, in particular, those that rely on indexing, don't take advantage of this power. Fortunately, a new breed of active investor is working hard to understand what's really happening with the companies it invests in. In doing so, it is setting the table for corporate accountability to shareholders. Consider the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, a $50 billion fund responsible for the retirement income of 154,000 school teachers, 883,000 why am I messing this up? 83,000 retired teachers and 92,000 former teachers. Teachers is a success story with an annual rate of return of 11.7% since 1990. Unlike many other funds, Teachers uses its own staff of 200 to research companies and make most investment decisions. Bob Bertram, executive vice president of investments, says that much more information is publicly available than ever before. But to him, incremental knowledge comes from dedicated people talking to management and boards of companies. Teachers analysts have a deep understanding of a company's products, business strategy, work resources, marketing plans, financial assets, and competitors, to name a few. But they know more. Sure, we know lots of factual information, but by spending time with management, we know about their thinking processes. We have intimate knowledge about the people making decisions. We understand a lot about their culture and what makes them tick. This level of scrutiny brings its own moral hazard, insider information. If we get material, quote, if we get material information about a company's not, uh, 
quote, <laughs> Alex, don't get flustered. Fucking just repeat that. Don't get flustered. If we get material information about a company that's not public, we'll shut down trading in the company until the information is released, says Bertram. It's not a problem. Teachers, however, is among a minority of fiduciaries. Such funds need intensive research to understand the companies they invest in. Yet, almost none have adequate research staff. A combination of bad behavior and cheap online trading has destroyed the margins that fund Wall Street brokers' research. Even if trading volumes return to normal, it will be tough to find a business model that can support smart and trustworthy research. Ironically, this problem is a result of transparency. The transparency that cheap networks bring to the buying and selling of shares. A study by consulting firm Shelley Taylor and Associates shows that many companies resist the thirst for reliable information about them. The study in its 10th year examined information on operations, results, and corporate governance contained in websites and annual reports of 50 of the largest global corporations. A minority of companies provided shareholders with information on topics like challenges and risks, new product pipeline, management's background, board policy for evaluating the CEO and objectives. The researchers found steep declines in companies' willingness to discuss bad news compared with two years earlier. People just don't want to be held accountable, Taylor said. You don't say, Taylor. Some, some public companies are considering going private to avoid the public eye. Currently, public markets are in a dead zone, yet U.S. private equity markets are booming, especially in the mid-cap range. Companies are looking to go private to escape the costs, regulations, and scrutiny of the new environment. Their managers don't like being under the microscope. Of course, they can run, but they can't hide. While going private means a company can sidestep shareholder scrutiny, this doesn't diminish the growing scrutiny from the other members in the firm's stakeholder web. Opacity hurts market value and makes it tough to raise money. Equity capital is expensive because investors are dubious about the transparency of companies, says PricewaterhouseCoopers partner Joel Kurtzman. Quote, Capital markets are down because of concerns about transparency, more than a trillion dollars of lost shareholder value. Take a great company like GE. Its share price is less than half of what it was, largely because many shareholders lost faith in the company to be open, honest, and act in shareholders' interest. Close quote. Lawyers are on the, are on the, what, what, what? Lawyers, <laughs> come on, Alex. Lawyers are the frontline soldiers in the battle between shareholder openness and management opacity. Transparency champion Robert Monks notes that in the 70 years since the 1933 SEC legislation, the bar has essentially created language and sets of understandings around transparency and reporting that are so misleading they are Orwellian. Pointing to the disclosure, 
pointing to the, the pointing to the disclosure. There you go. Pointing to the disclosure of Jack Welsh's elaborate compensation plan revealed only through his divorce proceedings, Monks says everyone runs around nodding their heads and saying, my God, isn't it wonderful that what we got, I messed that up. Sorry, guys. Sorry, fam. Monks says, quote, everybody runs around nodding their heads and saying, my God, isn't it wonderful that we have got all of this disclosure and then we find out (laughs) Hey, we don't know anything. (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. Close quote. This has created a vast world of apparent transparency for shareholders that is misleading and dangerous. Monks quips that if all CEOs were forced to go through a divorce proceeding, shareholders might find out the truth about their compensation. Continuing. But to move forward, we should probably reject Shakespeare's advice to kill all the lawyers. On the side of transparency is a tiny but growing battalion of barrister, barristers barristers, who have taken to the courts to defend shareholders. Government lawyers are newly active, as are the lawyers hired by various shareholders' rights groups, institutional share, shareholders, NGOs, and sundry other civil society organizations. Monks himself has left the public policy arena to rehang his shingle as a lawyer and undertake a campaign for open enterprises. Shareholders are getting active for transparency, but this is the tip of the iceberg. Shareholders are organizing to hold firms accountable in many ways, in many more ways. The next little subheading here is called Institutional Catch-22. Why we're passive investors. It's why we are, it's a contraction. Why we are passive investors. Boards are supposed to represent shareholders. Institutional investors own the lion's share of equities. But most institutions are passive investors and they refuse to get involved in governance at all, let alone to sit on boards. The result is that most stockholders are effectively disenfranchised. You don't fucking say. Depending on whom you talk to, there are different reasons for this. Many institutions select the stocks in their portfolios on the basis of a predetermined formula rather than on an assessment of an individual corporation's prospects. The word index comes from broad-based indices such as the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Index that some funds attempt to mirror. The institution, be it a mutual fund or a pension fund, figures that if it matches the index's performance, it is doing satisfactorily. Indexed funds have generally performed as well as actively managed funds. There are a couple of points here, three points, and I'll go ahead and read them off here. First, active involvement in corporations could create a marketing problem for institutional investors. This doesn't apply to pension funds, but it does apply to private sector funds like Fidelity. Pension funds place hundreds of millions, even billions, with private sector funds that theoretically have the knowledge to manage these investments well. 
But companies like Fidelity also manage pensions, such as 401k plans for corporations, the same corporations in which they may be investing on behalf of, say, New York City's employee pension fund. In other words, they face a real conflict of interest. How can a Fidelity be expected to take on a shareholder battle with the management of an Enron or a General Motors if Fidelity is also hoping to renew its 401k contract for the company's employees, awarded at the discretion of management. Dog, you see, you see what I'm saying? One hand washes the other. One hand washes the other, and yet both are dirty. What's fucking good? The second point. It's a lot of work to be actively involved in companies. A typical pension fund might invest in more than 3,000 companies, yet only have a staff of 60. One manager told us it's tough enough just to track these firms, let alone be active in their governance. It's because it's, be- <laughs> it's because they're not professional. A professional does not spread themselves thin, right? A professional has enough resources to cover the ground they need to cover. And so they're sleeping in this sense. They're sleeping. So you need to catch them lacking. You need to catch, you as a corporate cowboy, need to catch them lacking. But I digress and I'll say, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say less on the topic. The third point here, funds that churn their portfolios, that's buy and sell stocks, buy and sell stocks frequently, avoid close connections with individual companies. To sit on a board, they say, would qualify them as insiders, restricting their ability to buy and sell the company's stock because of the blackout periods insiders face. A cop-out, says Monk. I, I agree. That's a fucking cop-out. Just because they don't want to do... They do not want to do the due diligence. They do not want to uphold high standards. So they're just... They're just throwing their weight around recklessly. They're not even running and gunning because when you run and gun, you, you shoot with prejudice. You shoot discriminately, Right? But when you're just letting the algorithm, letting an algorithm do its thing, you're what you're doing is just capitalizing on profit, capitalizing on the wave. You're just riding the wave and not doing anything for the wave. Again, there might not be anything wrong with it legally, but ethically, fucking up the bag, bro. You're fucking it up for the long term. I hope you get out, you retire. And then you, uh, yeah, just retire to the woods because we don't want to see anything productive. Like if, if you have ideas for productivity, I, I likely wouldn't want to see them because you should be getting in while they're getting in as hot. If you want to come in later on, you're going to be old, decrepit, <laughs> just as soon, just as soon to be buried and, and about as good for it too. <laughs> than me wanting your quote-unquote good ideas that are already dated as fuck. I mean, I'm saying, I said this in the last episode, we should have already like 100 mile to the gallon carburetors. And carburetors are supposedly old technology. But that shit exists, right? That shit exists. I've came across some very smart minds, some very smart minds who, who are not able to patent what they know because the design is already claimed and and apparently already exists. All right, continuing. A cop-out, says Monks. They don't give a damn. That's a quote. 
quote, they don't give a damn. There are a thousand ways around that problem. In reality, they are making a ton of money without doing anything. They want to do as little as possible and avoid angering prospective or client corporate clients. Prospective or current. I fucked that one up. They want to do as little as possible and avoid angering prospective or current corporate clients. Yeah, so essentially it's a a giant conflict of interest. So what they'll do is uh, stroke each other's ego, stroke each other's meat in a circle jerk. To just to keep from stepping on each other's toes. <laughs> All right, the next little subheading here is the old SEC view: keep shareholders in the dark and asleep. <laughs> All right, from the day it was founded in 1934, the Securities and Exchange Commission dismissed the notion that shareholders had a right to know and influence a company's behavior. But following the court battles, intense public pressure, and fiascos like Enron and WorldCom, in September 2002, the SEC finally seemed to accept the idea that shareholder activism is a good influence in the market. Time will tell how genuine the SEC's conversion really is. From the first seven decades, From the first seven decades of its existence, the basic principle underlying the SEC's approach was that a corporation's management should be left alone to manage the corporation. If a shareholder didn't like what the company was doing, the solution was simple. Sell the shares. If many people followed this path, the company's share price would fall and presumably management would mend its ways. This was the SEC vision of corporate democracy. A major component of shareholder activism is the ability of crusading shareholders to propose resolutions for adoption at a company's annual general meeting. In 1942, the SEC promulgated Rule 14A-8 of the Securities Exchange Act commonly known as the shareholder proposal rule. The rule permitted shareholders with, quote, properly framed proposals to have the proposal distributed at the company's expense along with the company's proxy material that went to shareholders before an annual general meeting. The SEC specified the only that the SEC specified that the only permitted resolution topics were those that dealt with, quote, a proper subject for security holders. Even then, under state law, most resolutions aren't binding on a company because the board of directors' authority is seen as paramount. This has proved particularly contentious where when boards have adopted anti-takeover poison pills, when shareholders particularly institutional investors don't agree with the board's decision. The question of the balance of authority among shareholders, the board of directors, and corporate management is one that shareholders want clarified by the courts. Shareholders are frustrated by too many boards that believe majority rule may be fine, may be a fine way to run a country, but it's not too radical a notion for corporations. Let me reread that because I fucked it up. Shareholders are frustrated 
by too many boards that believe majority rule may be a fine way to run a country, but it's too radical a notion for corporations. What constitutes a, quote, proper subject for shareholder resolutions in the SEC's eyes became clear in 1951. Greyhound refused to distribute in its proxy materials a resolution calling for the company to stop racially segregating passengers on its buses. The SEC agreed with Greyhound and ruled the resolution improper. Lest there be any misunderstanding and to protect other companies from being pestered with such requests, in 1952, the SEC amended Rule 14A-8 to exclude any resolution in which it properly appears that the proposal is submitted primarily for the purpose of promoting general economic, political, racial, religious, social, or similar causes. End quote. This was a profound shackling of shareholder rights. If a part owner of a company can't raise with its co-owners the company's approach to political or social issues, then who can? From the SEC's point of view, the answer seemed to be nobody. This disconnect prompted Adolf A. Burl, or is it Burley? Adolf A. Burl. Let's go Burl because it doesn't have an accent over the E. Adolf A. Burl to observe in 1954, quote, it's a big block quote. In effect, when an individual invests capital in the large corporation, he grants to the corporate management all power to use that capital to create, produce, and develop and he abandons all control over the product. He is an almost completely inactive recipient. He can spend his dividends or share or, or <laughs> he can spend his dividends or sell his shares for cash, taking care of his needs for consumption and enjoyment. But he must look elsewhere for opportunity to produce or create. End block quote. The SEC's philosophy remained unchallenged until 1968, the height of the Vietnam War. The Medical Committee on Human Rights, a group of young doctors, asked Dow Chemical to circulate a resolution to shareholders instructing the company to stop making napalm, a horrific chemical weapon used by U.S. forces. Dow refused. The SEC supported the company, and the committee took the SEC to court. In the summer of 1970, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled in the committee's favor. The decision strongly endorsed the idea that shareholders have a right to review corporate decisions with political implications. The Dow decision coincided with similar action against General Motors. A group of public interest lawyers formed Campaign GM and submitted a number of proxy resolutions concerning the automaker's corporate citizenship. Campaign GM was able to generate tremendous media interest and the SEC ultimately decided the two of the resolutions should be voted on at the annual general meeting shareholder activism had arrived. This immediately turned up the heat on pension funds, universities, foundations, and other large shareholders. 
Students at Harvard, for example, pushed the university administration to sell its shares in Gulf Oil because the company supported the repressive regime in Angola. When Harvard President Derek Bach refused to meet the demands, students occupied his office. After the sit-in, Bach's special assistant, Stefan Farber, went to Angola to gather information that would help Harvard decide on future actions as a responsible Gulf shareholder. Soon after, Harvard launched its Inventor Responsibility Research Center to investigate similar questions. The momentum grew. In 1972, Yale published a report arguing that universities should consider and support reasonable shareholder resolutions. The Ford Foundation commissioned a report that concluded that it was inappropriate for an institution like Ford not to vote proxies on the new social policy resolutions. But while shareholders mobilized, the SEC was not to be outdone. Having tried and failed to ban shareholder resolutions on social or political issues, the SEC moved to prohibit resolutions, quote, relating to the conduct of the ordinary business operations of the issuer, end quote. The idea is to prevent shareholders cluttering up the annual general meeting agenda with votes on mundane day-to-day issues of running the company. If management wanted to introduce a new product or hire a director of marketing, these were issues for management to decide, not the shareholder. Seems simple enough, but management seeking to avoid shareholder scrutiny and votes became increasingly aggressive in its definition of, quote, ordinary business, well beyond what advocates of shareholders' rights viewed as appropriate. <laughs> Funny, huh? When, 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 the, when the small folks, when the little people start attaching, start attaching, not demands, but uh, start leveraging their control with their money, start literally voting with their money, start earmarking their money for certain projects, for certain initiatives, right? It's it's only too bad we can't do this with federal taxes. We can't earmark our taxes to go towards specific programs. If there is, if there is, I'll look into it. I'll research it. I mean, I've got folks for it. I've got folks to do it. If we can earmark taxes, keep them out of, I guess, the beast system, right? <laughs> if we can keep them out of the beast system, if we can keep them out of the beast system, then the, that tax money stays in our community, in our communities. It doesn't get sent overseas. It doesn't get fucked off on dumbass wars, on brother wars at that, because these are just individuals in foreign lands who have the same personal interests that we do in their own communities, their own economies, their own countries, governments, nations, right? So without... so. In preventing, I guess, our money to go towards fruitless ends, keeping it out and necessarily voting for our voting with our money, attaching our values, our own values to that currency, to what is, you know, today's currency, attaching our values to it to it will make our values worthwhile worth something. That's a rant, right? 
Maybe it's because the day is getting long and I'm getting tired, but no, I'm pushing through. Come on, Alex, you got this. Continuing, continuing. Questions, questions such as child labor in the, in the supply chain, environmental policies, or workplace diversity are central to a company's reputation and therefore financial future. These could be critical to whether the company prospers, and it is grossly misleading to simply dismiss them as, quote, ordinary business. In the early 1990s, Citicorp and Bank America, Bank America, you mean Bank of America, and Bank America used the, quote, ordinary business provision to dismiss resolutions concerning write-downs of third world debt. And DuPont brushed aside a resolution to phase out chlorofluorocarbons, a highly contentious topic. Cracker Barrel Old Country Stores, a Tennessee-based restaurant chain, claimed that its firing of 11 gay and lesbian workers was also ordinary business, despite criticisms that discrimination hardly qualifies as such. In September 2002, Harvey Pitt, then chairman of the SEC, endorsed shareholder resolutions, saying they, quote, give shareholders a chance to inform management how they feel regarding major issues confronting corporations, end quote. Pitt announced that he had asked the commission's director of corporate finance to consider a proposal to eliminate the, quote, ordinary business exception from the list of reasons that companies could exclude otherwise validly promulgated shareholder proposals. It is my hope that we can make shareholder suffrage a reality. Isn't that cute? Isn't that nice? (laughs) Shareholder democracy. Corporate democracy. Isn't that nice? But nowadays, corporate democracy has been fucking twisted into corporate participation in in, in national democracy. That's fuckery. <laughs> it should be democracy from corporate on down, but who am I to judge, right? Who am I to fucking... Who am I to judge? I'm just a corporate cowboy, right? I'm running and gunning. I'm poking and prodding. Sticking and moving. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. I make myself laugh sometimes. In September 2002, already read that, shareholder advocates want more. They want shareholder resolutions to be binding. The Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, that's the ICCR, is a 30-year-old association of 275 Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Jewish institutional investors with combined portfolios worth an estimated $110 billion. Its members include religious denominations and communities, pension funds, hospital corporations, foundations, dioceses, and publishers. Each year, ICCR member institutional investors press hundreds of corporations to improve their social and environmental performances. Quote, we use the shareholder resolution as a means of transparency says ICCR executive director, sister Patricia Wolf. Quote, most of our, res- I mean, Wolf, that's gotta be, that's gotta be a, a, an omen, right? Quote, most of our resolutions ask for a report. That report we use as a vehicle to gain information about the company and then engage that company in direct dialogue. 
The resolutions also serve to educate the public. End quote. Wolf says non-binding resolutions achieve some change, but she wants true shareholder democracy. Quote, I would love to see the company have to adopt a position if it got more than 50% of the vote. End quote. A key issue for shareholder activists, as the fidelity story in chapter one shows, which is, I messed that, uh, I messed that sentence up. Let me try that again. A key issue for shareholder activists, as the fidelity story in chapter one shows, is whether mutual funds should be compelled to disclose how they vote on proxy resolutions. Oh, no, yeah. Fidelity was, just a side comment. Fidelity was a really good uh, case study on on proxy voting and uh, conflict of interest in relation to proxy voting. Go go listen to it, season seven, episode one. As that's where we read the the Naked Corporations chapter one. Go listen to it. It's uh it's a hell of a ride. It's a hell of a ride for for those who nerd out on shit like this. I mean, like me. <laughs> Until recently, continuing, until recently, mutual funds were not required to disclose this information, and only a small number of funds volunteered the data. Activists viewed this as a major impediment to corporate transparency and accountability, but most mutual funds prefer the existing opaque system. Mm, I wonder why. Quote, the purpose of disclosure is to provide meaningful information that investors can use to make sound investing decisions, says Chris Vlasizna. Vlasizna? Vlasizna. Hey, I, I think I, I got that. Vlasizna. It's, uh, it's a weird. Uh, is it a. What is that? Like a Danish? No. Uh, Stockholm? No, no, it's a, uh, I forget, I, I forget where, like, it comes from, like, the Nordic region up there somewhere. Uh, the last name is spelled W-L-O-S-Z-C-Z-Y-N-A. Loxina? <laughs> This is a spokesperson for the Investment Company Institute, which lobbies on behalf of the mutual fund industry. I'm going to continue. Quote, that includes information on fees, risk, investment strategy. But you have to draw the line somewhere, and proxy votes just aren't meaningful. <laughs> this, motherfucker is, this motherfucker is wild. He says proxy votes don't matter. Right, but then why, why are they exercised the way that they are, right? In 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 relation to the conflict of interest. They ain't really looking out for their class. They're looking out for themselves and their own contracts. Dirty, dirty. It's a dirty fucking game. It's a dirty shame. Quote, we've long believed in quiet diplomacy with companies and think that's worked well for our shareholders. Fidelity spokesperson Vincent Lomporic Lomporcio, 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 Lomporcio said, <laughs> quote, if that information released publicly were to have a negative impact on the stock, then that would have a negative effect for our shareholders. <laughs> what kind of shoot yourself in the foot, put the barrel in your mouth type ass logic is that, yo? All right, all right. 
Uh, David Weinstein, Fidelity's chief of administration, echoed this. Quote, shareholders hire us to manage their money, and we can do the best job of that without disclosure of our proxy votes. <laughs> All right. Despite these views, in early 2003, the SEC ruled that mutual funds would have to disclose. Nice. Okay. Outgoing SEC chairman Harvey Pitt and er had earlier justified the measure by saying voting disclosure gives investors fundamental information about the practices of those who vote proxies on their behalf. They also would discourage or expose proxy voting conflicts of interest. The securities belong to fund investors who are entitled to know how their property is being voted. Yo, this Harvey Pitt guy sounds based. The next subheading here, winning, winning back the franchise. Winning back the franchise. Okay. The 2001-2002 corporate scandals may yet prove to be a milestone in the development of the U.S. economy. In response to criminal behavior, bad decisions, and egregious excesses on the front pages day after day, the number of shareholder resolutions for the 2,000 companies monitored by the Investor Responsibility Research Center soared from 802 in all of 2002 to more than 850 in just the first two months of 2003, most concerned corporate governance. This is because of hope. This is, no, 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 I, I fucked that sentence up. I tried, <laughs> my brain tried to shortcut that shit. This is cause for hope. That's good. It suggests that more shareholders understand that the economy's welfare demands that they play a greater role in the system than simply providing capital. If the system is to function well, shareholders must exert constant vigilance over corporate conduct. If they don't, bad things happen. To date, corporate managers have enjoyed free reign with many boards exercising no discipline whatsoever over their company's affairs. Often, board members were drawn from management or were friends of the CEO. They fostered an illusion of corporate governance. Creative accounting became the order of the day. In 2002, more than 250 companies restated their earnings. Free of constraints, senior executive compensation packages soared to unjustifiable heights. In 1970, the average full-time worker earned $32,552 while the average compensation among the top 100 CEOs was $1.25 million, according to Forbes's magazine's annual survey. In 1999, the average worker's pay had climbed only slightly to $35,864, and the average compensation of the top 100 CEOs had increased more than $2,800 percent to 37.5 million dollars god damn much of the blame for corporate misdeeds belongs squarely on the shoulders of the major institutional investors rather than be active and diligent they have been passive and negligent as institutions grew to become the dominant holders of wealth they assiduously shirked the attendant responsibilities in 
fair shares, the future of shareholder power and responsibility, Jonathan Charkham and Anne Simpson persuasively argue that large shareholders must acknowledge and exercise their responsibilities to ensure our economic system's proper functioning. And this is uh, this is true. We we read this just a little earlier, where these large shareholders really only have like sixty peeps in the office, and yet they manage like three hundred clients. Like they manage like three hundred clients with with hundreds of shareholders each. We're talking then into the thousands of accounts, right? And then to have to vote, have to, have to know their clients, and then have to vote their proxies. You, they, they have no time for the due diligence required to even be socially responsible. So <laughs> they're fucking up the bag big time, big time. There's a block quote here from these, from these, uh, from these folks, Jonathan Charkham and Ann Simpson. It says here, it is because the good working of the market-based system demands it for economic, social, and political reasons. The economic reason is that there needs to be a mechanism for controlling boards that do not work well so as to prevent unnecessary waste of resources. The social reason is that listed companies are a crucial and integral part of the fabric of a modern society and their successes reduce alienation. The political reason is that the limited liability company has achieved its far-sighted originator's aims beyond their wildest dreams of producing concentrations of power and resources, and that those who exercise these powers must be effectively accountable for the way they do. The need for of the end block quote, end block quote, the need for active shareholders shouldn't be confused with the idea of shareholder activism we discussed earlier. Active shareholders ensure good corporate governance and independent board members to help guarantee the shareholders' interests are fully represented at the board level. But as we've seen in its clumsy and misguided effort to keep companies from being entangled in social and or political issues, the SEC doggedly disabused shareholders of any notion they had a role to play in corporate conduct. Many institutional investors were utterly content with the SEC's vision of shareholder impotence. They didn't want responsibility for corporate behavior. It would require judgment, effort, and time. That's that's what I was that's what I'm just talking about. That's what I'm just saying. How can they manage the several thousand accounts that they have, what, control over? Not even control. They have responsibility. It's not control. They have responsibility. They are, they are provided authority, right? They are um, empowered by their clients with this authority, meaning that they have a fiduciary duty to their clients to vote these proxies responsibly, to do the required due diligence investigation and research necessary to look after their clients' best interest. But they don't fucking want it. <laughs> They're lazy. They're useless. All right, continuing, continuing. It would require judgment, effort, and time. Long-term investors, pension funds in particular, wanted to buy a stock and sit back and relax. But as the corporate scandals of 2001-2002 showed, this is a prescription for management misbehavior. 
increasingly institutional investors will understand the need for them to play an active role in the accountability webs of companies in their portfolios. The few institutional investors who take a hands-on approach say their funds are better off for it. The State of Wisconsin Investment Board, SWIB, SWIB, is the 10th largest pension fund in the United States and the 19th largest public or private pension fund in the world. Once it has invested in a company, it believes it has an ongoing fiduciary responsibility to help the company achieve maximum returns. Cynthia Rich is the fund's director of corporate governance, charged with the task of ensuring that healthy governance structures are in place for all companies in which the fund is invested. In small cap companies, SWIB is often the largest or second largest shareholder. She told us she is vigilant that her goal of good governance doesn't involve, doesn't evolve, doesn't, doesn't evolve into micromanaging but that the fund does step in and, for example, assist with board member recruitment if that's what it feels is required. Its fiduciary responsibilities demand nothing less. So, Swib sounds based. The Ontario Teachers Pension Plan discussed earlier has much the same philosophy. Bob Bertram argues the irrefutable logic of being an active investor applies to the managers of index funds. Just because they are forced to hold a stock doesn't mean they have to passively accept whatever management wants. Indeed, since they can't vote with their feet and sell the stock, the incentive and fiduciary requirements for them to become active is even stronger. Quote, voting shares for an index fund, in my mind, is much more important because your investment strategy doesn't give the option to walk away from a bad situation. End quote. Yo, this guy, this guy's a. F- all right, all right. Okay, all right, Alex, you can stop. You can stop stroking these fools real quick, all right? <laughs> Just read. Bertram says the hands on approach offers a number of other benefits, explaining why it has outperformed market benchmarks. Quote, active investing encourages developing better management skills because it gives us opportunities for adding. It has the added benefit of being a long-term oriented strategy that in turn forces the organization to maximize the results over the long haul. End quote. The next subheading here, values-based investing. In 2002, many investors in mutual funds cut their losses and ran. According to Lipper Inc., U.S. diversified equity funds posted outflows over the year of $10.5 billion. But one prominent group of mutual funds bucked the trend. So-called SRI funds enjoyed $1.5 billion in growth. The number of socially screened funds and their assets under management soared during the mid-1990s, particularly funds with an environmental emphasis. In a world of growing transparency, socially responsible investment funds are attracting new converts. Most institutional investors view these funds as a sideshow, or worse, as 
dangerous to shareholders. They argue that their fiduciary duty is to maximize the performance of their fund, not improve society. But SRI funds are showing good financial results, initiating some serious head scratching. This is leading to a far-reaching shift in the criteria used by many investors to select firms, in turn, driving changes in the firm itself. At their simplest level, SRI mutual funds practice, quote, negative screening. They refuse to invest in companies operating in industries such as tobacco, gambling, firearms, or alcohol. Wow, that sounds big gay. Yo, my firm would invest probably solely in those. <laughs> Yo, especially the last two. Nah, fuck it, all four of those. More sophisticated funds also practice, quote, positive screening, seeking firms with good employee relations, strong records of community involvement, excellent environmental impact policies and practices, respect for human rights, and safe and useful products. I, I, don't, see, I don't see why tobacco, gambling, firearms, and alcohol can't do all that. <laughs> Today's hundreds of SRI funds compete with investor interest, the largest SRI fund family is the Calvert Group. The Calvert Group? While small SRI funds have existed for decades, Calvert gave a big boost to the concept in 1982 when it introduced both mutual and money market funds with social screens. It was also the first mutual fund to oppose apartheid in South Africa and was subsequently one of the first mutual funds to reinvest in a free Africa in 1994, following Nelson Mandela's election victory. Just a side note, was this before or after the Mandela effect? I'm just fucking with you, continuing. <laughs> Not only does Calvert demand transparency from companies in which it invests, the company strives to be a model of transparency itself, this is typical of the SRI industry. Websites of SRI funds often run on lengthy explanations of their approach to hot public policy issues. The funds take pains to explain how they arrive at their decisions. Regardless of a fund's sterling financial performance, investors may shun a fund because its managers made the wrong call when faced with a difficult decision. When a fund says it won't invest in companies that produce tobacco, should it also reject retail chains that sell the weed? Dude, okay, yeah, that's how you know this book was written by fucking squares. <laughs> Must a fund that shuns alcohol stay away from a restaurant chain that sells wine? Oh, lordy. Oh, lordy. Continuing, the Calvert, sites, the Calvert site maintains detailed issue briefs on topics of interest to its investors. The list currently includes alcohol and gambling, animal welfare, board diversity, cocoa, community relations, environments, firearms, high technology, human rights, indigenous peoples' rights, layoffs, nuclear power, proxy disclosure, tobacco, weapons, women, workplace issues, and workplace violence. Yo, half of these could be fixed. 
by educating corporate cowboys. Fucking real talk, yo. I, we, we, we don't need a Calvert site. We don't need it. And we don't need a Calvert for every single one of these issues. Half of these, more than half of these, I, 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 I would venture to say all of them. But at least half of these, if not more, more than half of these could be fixed by educating corporate cowboys to act for themselves for better business. But nah, <laughs> Calvert wants to act like the quote unquote savior, regardless of the color, the white savior, the fucking black savior, brown savior, gray savior. Nah, what they need is corporate cowboys regulating from the inside. Regulating from all angles. Continuing, just as important as a fund's approach to an issue is what criteria it uses to judge whether a company passes an investment screen. Many companies claim to be pro-environment, for example, but few SRI funds have the resources to independently scrutinize the environmental behavior of the companies in which they are interested. They rely on third-party assessments from organizations like World Wildlife Fund or Sierra Club. All this applies to the retail investor as well. With the internet turning desktop computers into geysers of information, individual investors can learn almost as much as fund managers. The largest site for individual SRI investors, socialfunds.com, features more than 10,000 pages of information on SRI mutual funds, community investments, corporate research, share owner actions, and daily social investment view news. Uh, news, daily social investment news. Much of this information is derived from a company's growing accountability web. Environmental infractions can be unearthed from government reports and posted on the web. Forums allow potential investors to exchange views and discuss ways to drill down on issues of potential concern. Notwithstanding corporate efforts for opacity, the individual investor has never been so well equipped to judge whether its investments will help him make money while advancing and through advancing broader societal goals. Social responsibility. Oh, <laughs> social. Uh, that's the next subheading. The next subheading, social responsibility and stock performance. I got a little carried away. I, I got excited. I wanted to read ahead. Many investment managers shun SRI funds because conventional wisdom holds that these companies underperform the market. No, I'm not going to say it's that. It's that. It's that they're fucking squares and not their good time. Not, not the good kind of square. Many investment managers shun SRI funds because conventional wisdom holds that these companies underperform the market. In other words, a socially responsible investor forfeits profits to advance other societal goals. Quote, I have big problems with a company that doesn't say its top priority is to shareholders. As one pension executive put it, the U.S. Department of Labor has dubbed SRI as inappropriate for Employee Retirement Income Security Act investments. That's ERISA investments, its own pension fund, stating that the trustee's duty is to invest solely for the exclusive benefits of plan participants. 
Mainstream fund managers feel SRI issues take them into the political arena where they do not belong. They're money managers, not politicians. Public policy issues are prey to judgment and interpretation, requiring skills not normally within the money manager's ambit. Money managers, so the argument goes, rely on interpreting solid business issues, not divining capricious public sentiment. Shareholder value is created by maximizing profits. Profits are maximized by excluding extraneous factors like social responsibility. In fact, the more a firm can legally externalize costs to society, such as the costs of pollution, how, dog, how the fuck is that legal? <laughs> it says here the better for its bottom line. That, nah, I don't. Nah, nah. You need fucking. You need a corporate cowboy in the mix, man. You corporate cowboys need to wake the fuck up. People need to wake the fuck up to what the game looks like, to what corporate works like, to how corporate operates. And y'all need to become corporate cowboys. That's that. That's the basis of this entire podcast. It started with the idea of cocaine cowboys if you go look that up go look that up see who was involved they weren't just individuals they were government individuals who splintered off of spots like the dea the fbi the atf any other three-letter organization you know some more reclusive than others splintered off and would pick up shipments of coca right and sell it themselves they were co cocaine cowboys. Why? Because they were running and gunning. They were they 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 jumped the gun. Some of them got popped. Some of them didn't. But what we, what we need, and again, I got nothing against folks who uh, who sell to satisfy, right? Who sell to satisfy. But even then, there ought to be good business. There ought to be better business, not fuckery. Right, but because it's so taboo, and because there's a black market, yes, I get it. I get it. Dirt begets dirt, violence begets violence, blood begets blood. I get it. I get it. But that's only because it's a it's a characteristic of black markets, right? What we need now are individuals inside of corporations, working as corporate cowboys, splintering off, and working for the betterment of business. That's that's what ought to occur. Doing so because if the norm, if the norm is corporate fuckery, right? If the norm is fucking over the community, if the norm is fucking over society for profit, then a corporate cowboy profits for the betterment of business. Returning returning it to a wholesome level, returning humanity to business. Business is personal. We know this. Business is war. We know this. But that's not to say we can't work together. When nations aren't fighting one another, they're working together. They're trading rather peacefully, exchanging culture, exchanging values, finding common ground and building on it, solid foundations. For more business? Is that not what we want? <laughs> All right, Alex, fucking stop raining. Let's go. Hit this shit. It says, 
mainstream fund managers feel SRI issues take them into the political arena where they do not belong. They're money managers, not politicians. I already read that. This sentiment is seemingly reinforced by financial theory, the, 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 the bottom line theory fucking over society for the bottom line theory. This sentiment is seemingly reinforced by financial theory, which predicts that returns on investment must be lower if constrained by SRI guidelines. By ruling out some firms for immoral products while favoring others for good behavior, SRI funds artificially reduce the number of companies eligible for investment. In a theoretically efficient market, SRI funds would suffer a diversification cost. Accordingly, SRI constraints are inconsistent with a goal of maximizing returns. Yeah. Uh, who are these? Who are these people? Hold on. It says here, blah, 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 by ruling out. No, 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 no. Who are these theoretical fools? <laughs> I was about to go look them up. They sound like cooks. However, if screening for corporate values and responsibility identifies companies that are more likely to meet or beat the market, then the foundation of conventional thinking begins to crumble. And as we discuss in a moment, that is exactly what many studies show. The implications are profound when coupled with the clear trend of investor sentiment. We see that SRI funds are are increasingly popular even when investors as a whole are shunning the stock market. The growing number of shareholder resolutions show investors are concerned with corporate conduct and governance. As investors increasingly look for evidence of corporate integrity, they will rely on some of the SRI screening tools already in use. How well and fairly a company treats its employees is a good indicator of corporate values. So is a company's attitude to environmental issues. And increasingly, product, service, and operational strategies that incorporate sustainable social and environmental factors are more likely to result in growing sales and reduced costs. Companies that recognize these facts will prove increasingly attractive to capital. Corporations that fail these screens will be spurned. The upshot is that more and more companies will want to look SRI friendly, whether or not they care to pass the screens of SRI funds. And they're, oh, all right, all right, just, just a quick comment. If they want to just look SRI friendly, whether or not they pass SRI funds, right? I bet a dollar. A dollar says that a lot of the larger funds, investing funds, right? The institutional investors, the ones who don't do the fucking research and don't do the due diligence for the sake of their clients and accounts, those motherfuckers will just, will just be investing on appearance <laughs> because they, they ain't going to be screening these funds. We already established that they're fucking up the fiduciary duty. We already, we already established that they are lacking, right? They're just going to get caught lacking harder now and still fucking up the bag. Continuing, in their comprehensive 1995 book, Corporate Responsibility and Financial Performance, The Paradox of Social Cost, Moses Pava and Joshua Krauss analyzed 21 studies and concluded that SRI screening enhances 
investment performance rather than harming it. In 2001, Joshua Daniel Margulies and James Patrick Walsh examined 95 studies on the relationship between a firm's social performance and financial performance. Among their finds was when corporate social performance was treated as an independent variable taken to predict or casually precede financial performance, it had a positive relationship with financial performance in 42 of the studies. That's 53%. No relationship in 19 studies. That's 24%. And a negative relationship in 16. That's 19%. A January 2003 study by the Social Investment Forum assessed the performance of socially responsible mutual funds through the end of 2002 by using data from Lipper Inc., and Morningstar, the top mutual fund rating agencies in the United States. Morningstar's ratings compare each fund's historical returns to its measures of risk on the basis of historical volatility. Funds showing the highest return to risk ratios get Morningstar's coveted five stars. Those with the lowest ratios get one star. The Lipper rating system gives an A or B rating to top performing funds. Major findings of the forum's analysis include, there's a couple of points here which I will read for you, include first point, nearly two-thirds of social funds earn highest earnings. Of the 51 socially screened funds with a three-year performance record tracked by the Social Investment Forum, 33 Illuminati confirmed that or 65% received the highest marks from either Lipper or Morningstar Illuminati confirmed according to the forum I'm just fucking with you guys 25 or 49% of the funds tracked received an A or B ranking from Lipper based on one and or three year total returns within their investment categories. A total of 22 screened funds or 43% earned either four or five stars from Morningstar for at least three year risk adjusted performance. Second point here, nearly three out of four of the largest socially responsible funds get top ratings. Of the socially screened funds with more than $100 million in assets, 13 of 18 or 72% received top rankings from either or both Lipper and Morningstar. The third point, a socially responsible index outperforms the S&P 500 both during 2002 and on a total returns basis for 10 years. For the 10-year period ended December 31st, 2002, total returns of the Domini 400 Social Index, that's an index of 400 primarily large capitalization U.S. corporations, roughly comparable to the S&P 500, selected on the basis of a wide range of social and environmental criteria, showed an annual gain of 9.99%, while the S&P 500 rose 9.35% over the same period. In 2002, the Domini index fell 20.1% while the S&P fell a full 2% further, losing 22.09%.
Social Investment Forum President Tim Smith said, we can social, we can categorically, we can say, sorry, no, I, I fucked up that quote. Tim Smith said, we can say categorically that socially responsible funds can go toe-to-toe with the broad universe of mutual funds and, in fact, do better than other types of funds. A 2003 study by Governance Metrics International, an independent corporate governance ratings agency in New York, found a tight correlation between corporate performance and good governance. The company pioneered the concept of governance ratings on the premise that, quote, companies that emphasize corporate governance and transparency will, over time, generate superior returns and economic performance and lower their cost of capital. The opposite is also true. Companies weak in corporate governance and transparency represent increased investment risks and result in a higher cost of capital. Governance metrics looks at 600 measures, such as labor and environmental practices, poison pill tactics to stymie takeovers, and board independence. The company ranked Standard & Poor's 500 firms on governance and then rated the rankings to share performance over one, three, and five-year periods. Companies with high governance rankings significantly outperformed the S&P index, while those ranked lowest fared much worse. In the S&P 500, the average decline of a stock over the three years that ended March 20, 2003 was 2.3%, but the stocks of the five companies earning the firm's highest governance score rose 23.1% on average. On average, the top 15 companies averaged total returns of 3.4%. Stocks of the poorest governed firms fell 11.1%. Top governed companies also outperformed their competition in measures such as return on assets, return on investments, and return on capital. The next little subheading here, integrity screening. How can this be? Question mark. (laughs) Why do companies that behave in a socially responsible manner perform better? Some management thinkers argue that social responsibility is not causally, is it causally, causally, causally related. Yeah, it's not causally related, meaning that it's not a, it's not like a one-to-one relationship. Some management thinkers argue that social responsibility is not causally related to financial performance, but rather that it simply correlates with other factors that are the real roots of success. There are a couple of points. First point, socially responsible behavior may simply be an indication of management's competence. Point two, social responsibility could be a byproduct of prosperity and financial success, not the cause. Firms that have done well have more money to invest in doing good. SRI funds, the third point, SRI funds are more often actively managed. Active involvement by fiduciaries in investee companies, investee, investee companies, that's just companies that they invest in, right? Active involvement by fiduciaries in investee companies has been shown to improve corporate performance. 
And the fourth point, innovative and growth-oriented managements may be more likely to have good employee relations, environmental programs, and corporate citizenship. Some research suggests that even when adjusting for such variables, funds that screen for corporate responsibility still perform better than the average. This is a highly disputed topic and much remains to be learned, but there is an initial trend emerging with profound significance. Not all funds are alike. They screen for different factors. Funds that screen for social responsibility can be divided into two broad categories. The first, some funds use screens that have no demonstrable relationship to factors that drive sustainable business performance. For example, abortion, for or against, gambling or alcohol. Such funds may or may not perform better than the market. If they perform better, it is likely for indirect reasons like those cited above. <laughs> what does abortion have to do on business? What does abortion have to do with business performance? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I could, I could probably draw a correlation if I really wanted to, right? I could probably create one just in my mind, just off, just off top, just off rip. You know, being a, being an advocate, being a legal professional, I could spin something up for you. But <laughs> murder's murder, dog. I mean. How about we uh, legalize post-majority abortion? Tell me. Point two. Point two. <laughs> I got you with that one, huh? Point two. Continuing. Others have screens that reflect the values of the new business integrity, honesty, accountability, consideration, and transparency. These include factors like consideration of the environment, employee development, enhancement of human rights, open relationships with business partners and communities, and candid financial disclosure. In such cases, responsible behavior is a surrogate for the new business integrity. Evidence is mounting that the second group tends to perform better, especially over the long term. Companies that manage themselves according to principles of the new integrity are likely to be more efficient. They also avoid costly regulation. For example, Robert Repetto and Duncan Austin use discounted cash flow models and scenario analysis to show that the financial impact of future environmental regulation may be quite material, up to 11% of market value for U.S. pulp and paper companies in coming years. Open enterprises are less likely to be investigated or sued. They save money through eco-efficiency. Codes and standards of conduct help ensure accountability and cost control. Integrity enables successful business processes, which require honesty, accountability, and transparency. Trust drops contracting, collaboration, and transaction costs. Supply chain transparency reduces inventory and other operational costs. Folks, just a side comment. This is just a repetition. This has been repeated uh, chapter after chapter after chapter. And and it, it it truly is the theme of the book that I'm seeing. Transparency and communication uh, increases the value of said communication and has the potential to make business better if and only when those communicators it could be at any level in, a, in an organization, at, at any level 
in a hierarchical firm, right? If those communicators know what the fuck to do with the information. And for that, they've got to be educated as corporate cowboys. Continuing, benefits such as these fall directly on the bottom line and affect the performance of investee firms. Funds that screen for social responsibility may be implicitly screening out risk, avoiding investments in unsustainable businesses that externalize costs and expose themselves to the risk of lawsuits, scandals, and legal penalties. No fucking way. You mean to tell me that it took this long for, fu- for investment firms to get active and recognize risk? No fucking way. <laughs> Doug, oh, no, all right, I'm going to stop. The highly successful Calvert Social Equity Fund favors companies that, and there's a number of points here, which I'll, I'll read for you. So the highly successful Calvert Social Equity Fund favors companies that first perform regular environmental audits of their facilities, especially those that publish reports describing the results of those audits. Two, apply rigorous standards for reducing or preventing pollution and for responsible use of natural resources to all their facilities worldwide. Three, utilize innovative pollution prevention and natural resource protection programs. Four, undertake positive environmental actions, including participation in government, private sector, or company-specific programs. Five, make senior managers accountable for environmental performance and have internal programs that reward employees for environmental improvement. Six, actively hire and promote minorities and women. I don't know what the fuck that has to do with it, but compensate their workers fairly. Yes, always across the board. And strive to achieve and maintain good labor management relations, provide programs and benefits that support workers and their families, and provide a safe and healthy workplace. I absolutely agree with every single one of those points. Yes, even the minorities and women. The only reason I the only reason I knock that, I mark that up, is because they put that up out there like if it's a priority, right? Now, as a corporate cowboy. If you discriminate and you don't do business with minorities or women, you're fucking your own bag up, right? So the fact, again, that this has to be put out there like it's some discovery. It's a fucking discovery. Like, you mean to tell tell me we can do business with minorities and women? You mean to tell me that they're hireable? (laughs) All right. All right. Continuing. Internal policies especially hiring and firing, are also key indicators. One study that evaluated the social records of companies reported in the book Built to Last by James Collins and Jerry Porras found that those companies that had good social records had superior employee relations and diversity records. The fact that firms of integrity can build trust and orchestrate partners seems to pay off in share price. Better capability leads to innovation, product differentiation, and performance. Environmental standards not only reduce costs, they can result in growth and better shareholder value. One study showed that between 1994 and 1997, U.S. multinational corporations with high global international... No, I fucked that sentence. I fuck. I butchered that sentence. Hold up. 
One study showed that between 1994 and 1997, U.S. multinational corporations with high global environmental standards tended to have higher price-to-book ratios than companies adopting local environmental standards. Even after adjusting for factors such as industry membership, R&D intensity, and advertising intensity. Corporate brands have equity value. Sandra Waddock and Sam Graves show a strong correlation between reputation rankings in Fortune's most admired list and ratings of corporate social responsibility. Social screening may be a proxy for success screening. All this means that fund managers, in order to meet their fiduciary obligation to their investors, should screen for business integrity and or use the surrogate of social responsibility. In the age of openness, this is possible and the payoff for investors significant. During the height of the dot-com excitement, we wrote, quote, in the future, no one will speak of e-business, as all business will be e-business. I mean, business is war, dog, and we got many, many different fronts, and we're on what, the fifth, maybe the sixth generation of this shit? <laughs> this is the corporate world order. Either you wake up or you get slept. Continuing, we stand by this prediction. Okay, well, this prediction was made in 2002. And I mean, we still got brick and mortar buildings. A lot of them are fronts, but a lot of them are also not. The majority are not. All right, let, let me just put it that way. The majority are not. <laughs> Similarly, we believe that in the future, investors will not speak about socially responsible investment. Responsible investment and profitable investment will be synonymous. Wow, they were they were really making discoveries in 2002, huh? <laughs> and and, and the shit is still a problem today, right? So so it goes to show that business is still fucked. Business is in need of actual business people. Business is in need of corporate cowboys. Remember, you take care of business and business will take care of you. Business is personal. Business is war. I'd repeat that. That is the theme of the Corporate Cowboys podcast. Uh, Where where is it at? We'll be synonymous. Of course, there will be some funds that, for social, religious, or other reasons, screen for factors completely unrelated to financial performance. But But if SRI advocates continue to show as they do now, that SRI funds outperform the market, then investment managers have a fiduciary duty to embrace SRI methods of operation. This has profound implications for corporate management. Pension funds are an enormous block of capital that can't be ignored, and open enterprise will be at the front of the line of their investment candidates. The next subheading, investing when you own the economy. (laughs) As institutional funds grow in size, they alter the nature of the economy because they fundamentally alter the nature of corporate ownership. James Hawley and Andrew Williams coined the phrase, quote, fiduciary capitalism to describe this new era coming on the heels of Alfred DuPont Chandler's managerial capitalism 
and the entrepreneurial corporate capitalism practiced before that. Holly and Williams described the phenomenon of, quote, universal owners who are now at the heart of the new economy. These institutional funds essentially hold a cross-section of the economy, either because they are so big or because that they or because that is their asset allocation strategy. So either because they're so big or they're so spread out, essentially. For universal owners, it no longer makes sense. And no, I messed that one up. For universal owners, it no longer makes sense or is possible to pick winning and losing companies. Their fundamental interest is in the health of the economy overall, which obviously includes its long-term sustainability. The only thing that can raise all the corporate boats is a rising economic tide. So responsible fund managers should not only ensure that corporations operate in peak form, but that the economy does too. The universal owner has a much different agenda than an investor simply playing the market. When you own all the companies, you no longer assess an individual company in isolation. It makes more sense to consider a company's impact on the whole economy rather than on just its own bottom line. Irresponsible corporate behavior that can, that, sorry, Irresponsible corporate behavior that captures short-term gain at the expense of heavy external costs shouldn't be tolerated by the prudent universal owner. It doesn't make fiduciary sense. Prudent universal owners only want companies that deliver a net positive return to the economy. This closely aligns their interests with SRI advocates. The next subheading here. Series, series. That's C E R E S. Series, like the like the god, like the mythological god. Series stepping up to the plate. <clears throat> the rising knowledge of the retail investor, the growth of SRI funds, the power of business integrity determining financial performance, and the long-term interests of the universal owner are complementary forces advancing the interest of the open enterprise. A case in point is the Coalition for Environmentally Responsible Economies, or CERES. Headquartered in Boston, CERES comprises environmental investor and advocacy groups working with companies that have endorsed the CERES principles, a rigorous code of environmental conduct. By endorsing the CERES principles, a company does more than implement a blue box program. It shows, sorry, it says, <laughs> Alex, stop apologizing. The fuck? Just, just redo it. Just say you fucked up and redo it. It says that environmental awareness will be imbued in every facet of its operation, even to the extent of being factored into the selection process for board members. It would have been inconceivable two decades ago that any major corporation would pledge to behave in such a manner. But open enterprises realize that satisfying such demands makes it easier to compete for capital and to thrive in general. The basic idea is that negative externalities, such as the destruction of the environment, may not be as external, in quotes, as was previously believed. 
There are huge risks in externalizing environmental costs. Firms and fiduciaries alike need to step up to the plate and take action to mitigate these risks for competitive advantage and for the economic well-being of all firms. The series principles were formulated in 1989 in the wake of the Exxon Valdez disaster. Initially, big corporations showed no interest, and the series principles were adopted mainly by companies that already had strong, quote, green reputations, such as Ben and & Jerry's and The Body Shop. Yet, through the 1990s, the momentum for transparency grew. In 1993, Sonoco became the first Fortune 500 company to endorse the series principles. Other companies like AMR, Bank of America, Bethlehem Steel, Coca-Cola, Ford Motor Company, General Motors, Green Mountain Power Corporation, and Polaroid followed. By the end of 2002, more than 50 firms endorsed the series principles, including 13 members of, for, of the Fortune 500. 13 members of the Fortune 500. According to series, more than 2,000 companies worldwide regularly publish environmental reports. In 2002, series released a landmark study, Value at Risk, Climate Change and the Future of Governance, showing mounting evidence that failure to respond to the risks posed by climate change could result in multi-billion dollar losses for U.S. businesses and investment portfolios, and stating that this failure could represent a breach of fiduciary duty on the part of corporate directors and investment decision makers. The report is one of the first to make a direct link among climate change, fiduciary responsibility, and shareholder value. It was written by series. It was written for series. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it was written for series by in Innovest, Innovest Strategic Value Advisors, Innovest Strategic Value Advisors, an investment research and advisory firm. I wonder, uh, I wonder what side of the aisle they lean to. <laughs> um, let me see here. Yeah, the first to link that. I, I like, I like how uh, climate change has become commoditized. See, where before it, it's just pollution. If you're fucking up the environment, you're fucking up your business. Why? Because your reputation, your fiduciary responsibility in terms of of promoting shareholder value, your firm's reputation is on the line. If you fuck up where you work, if you shit where you eat, people will know because they'll see you keep eating and you'll look like a fucking like a beast, like a like a like a pig. Um there on this opposite page here there are the uh the series principles oh the 10 principles okay so the, the series 10 principles here are are for corporate endorsers uh i'll read them off to you the first protection of the biosphere we will reduce and make continual progress toward eliminating the release of any substance that may cause environmental damage to the air water or the earth or its inhabitants. We will safeguard all habitats affected by our operations and will protect open spaces and wilderness while preserving biodiversity. Huh. While preserving biodiversity, huh? <laughs> Except for open borders. Okay. Two, sustainable use of natural resources. We will make sustainable use of natural resources such as water, soil, and forests 
we will conserve non-renewable natural resources through efficient use and careful planning. I would imagine that the non-renewable part, I don't know. I don't know where humans fit into that equation. They, they, if you're, if you're upper echelon, you could view as humans just renewable, but I mean, your immediate family is non-renewable, right? So I don't know. There's a delicate balance of humanity, <laughs> humanity and avarice there. Three, reduction and disposal of wastes. We will reduce and, where possible, eliminate waste through source reduction and recycling. All waste will be handled and disposed of through safe and responsible methods. Four, energy conservation. We will conserve energy and improve the energy efficiency of our internal operations and of the goods and services we sell. We will make every effort to use environmentally safe and sustainable energy sources. Five, risk reduction. We will strive to minimize the environmental, health, and safety risks to our employees and the communities in which we operate through safe technologies, facilities, and operating procedures, and by being prepared for emergencies. Six, safe products and services. We will reduce and, where possible, eliminate the use, manufacture, or sale of products and services that cause environmental damage or health or safety hazards. We will inform our customers of the environmental impacts that our products or services and to try and try, try to connect. I messed that one up. We will inform our customers of the environmental impacts of our products or services and try to correct unsafe use. Seven. I mean, yeah, that just sounds like products liability. It's just slapping warnings and disclaimers on everything. Seven, environmental restoration. We will promptly and responsibly correct conditions we have caused that endanger health, safety, or the environment. To the extent feasible, we will redress injuries we have caused to persons or damage we have caused to the environment and will restore the environment. Eight, transparency, part one, informing the public. We will inform in a timely manner everyone who may be affected by conditions caused by our company that might endanger health, safety, or the environment. We will regularly seek advice and counsel through dialogue with persons in communities near our facilities. We will not take any action against employees for reporting dangerous incidents or conditions to management or to appropriate authorities. Sure. Sure, fam. Okay. <laughs> Nine, transparency part two, audits and reports. We will conduct an annual self-evaluation of our progress in implementing these principles. We will support the timely creation of generally accepted environmental audits procedures, environmental audit procedures. We will annually complete the series report, which will be made available to the public. And 10, management commitment. We will implement these principles and sustain a process that ensures that the board of directors and chief executive officer are fully informed about pertinent environmental issues and are fully responsible for environmental policy. In selecting our board of directors, we will consider demonstrated environmental commitment as a factor. So continuing, I mean, that, that's, that's the 10 principles, the 10 series principles for what? Environmental corporate social responsibility. All right. Continuing, James Martin, chairman. I mean, yeah, they all sound great. I get it. I get it. 
They all sound great, but that's just theory. That's just theory on paper. In practice, fam, there's so much gray area in practice where you can say one thing and do another and justify it by rationalizing something else. <laughs> Welcome to corporate, dog. All right, continuing, continuing. James Martin, chairman of InnoVest and former chief investment officer at TIAA CREF, one of the largest pension funds in the United States, explained why environmentalism is now inextricably linked to investing. Quote, the evidence is increasingly compelling that companies' performance on environmental issues does indeed affect their competitiveness, profitability, and share price performance, said Martin. Quote, since climate change is arguably the world's most pressing environmental issue, it follows logically that companies' response to the threats and opportunities of climate change, or their lack of response, could have a material bearing on their financial performance and therefore on shareholder value, end quote. Quote, because climate change will have an impact on all economic sectors, climate risk is now embedded to some degree in every business and investment portfolio in the United States, says Robert Massey, former executive director of Ceres. Quote, the risks are twofold. First, the economic slash financial risk where the damage is due to climate change itself. And second, exposure to the cost of greenhouse gas emissions from climate change regulation and potential litigation. This is another case of an off-balance sheet risk that is not being reported to shareholders, close quote. At the same time, Massey explained, quote, proactive action on climate change presents opportunities for new and expanded business activity, reduced costs, and increased shareholder value that will produce a net economic benefit. <laughs> you know, they're finally seeing the money at the end of the tunnel. They're seeing that light green light at the end of the tunnel. Jeez, come on. The report documents the risks of climate change from a wide array of industrial sectors. Quote, one of our many conclusions is that climate risk is not limited to any one sector, Massey said. It is now difficult to identify a sector of the economy that would not be affected in some way by climate change. The question is no longer whether any given portfolio contains climate risk, but how much. Sectors covered in the report include electric utilities, petroleum, gas, agriculture, manufacturing, tourism, water, forestry, electronics, building construction, and real estate and insurance. Fiduciary supporting series call for greater corporate candor, honesty, accountability, and investor diligence. This is great news for firms with business integrity. Their efforts will be increasingly rewarded. The next little subheading here, governance of the open enterprise. There's a little quote here. It starts with a little quote. If you took 99% of the boards and dissolve them, there wouldn't be a perceptible change in corporate governance or shareholder influence over companies. Imagine that, dog. You mean to tell me that boards are just a formality? You mean to tell me that boards are just a face? Just, just a table full of puppets, just, just empty suits in an armchair. Not even an armchair. It's gonna be like a like a swivel chair at this point, right? 
You mean to tell me that that it's just a facade of how corporate operates? Nah, tell me that ain't so. Continuing, continuing. The rise of active shareholders who screen for integrity and demand openness has enormous implications for the way companies govern themselves. Discussions of corporate governance have focused on how to make a better board. Governance analyst Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, for example, has argued eloquently for boards that create a climate of openness and candor, foster open dissent among among board members, use fluid portfolio, use a... Man, I fucked that one up. Hold up. Governance analyst Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, for example, has argued eloquently for boards that create a climate of openness and candor, foster dissent among board members, use a fluid portfolio of roles where directors are not typecast, ensure individual accountability of board members, and evaluate performance of the board itself. When it comes to empowering shareholders, however, tougher rules are needed. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, prompted by the Enron meltdown, is a step in the right direction, but it falls short of the critical reforms necessary for accountability. These include enhanced board independence, abolition of staggered boards, expensing of stock options, and increased disclosure on social and environmental issues. Shareholders need to be able to meaningfully affect the composition of the board, something they currently can't do. Consider how difficult it is for shareholders to nominate a director. They must produce and distribute a proxy at their own expense, in some cases to tens of thousands of other shareholders. They must hire lawyers as the mailing has to be approved by the SEC and might be contested by the corporation's lawyers. One nomination for a large public company could easily cost more than $1.5 million. This is a lot of money, even for a large pension or mutual fund, let alone an individual shareholder. As a result, management's slate of board nominees is always elected. These, li- <laughs> if this isn't, just a side note, if this isn't an analogy, an illustration, a demonstration of how elections in the United States happen, elections in any, quote, democratic uh, representative democracy works, right? That's not a reputation. We're only those nominees that are selected, are elected, right? Are, are, Are eligible for election, right? These aren't just open elections and everybody has the information. No, it takes money to set somebody up to get elected. And the folks who got the money are the, are the folks who, who get elected, in essence, essentially. This is a lot of money for a large, continuing, this is a lot of money for a large pension or mutual fund, let alone an individual shareholder. As a result, management's slate of board nominees is always elected. So management never fucking loses. Management is said to never lose. I mean, it is 2023 now, this book being written in twenty and 2002, right? Times were a little different, but the Wild West can't ever really be tamed, right? And when you have corporate cowboys and corporate cowboys are making bigger and bigger moves in 2023, management's got to deal they either have to deal or they get the steal. You feel me? 
<clears throat> as a result, management slates of board nominees is already is always elected. I already read that. These logistical and financial roadblocks facing a non-management endorsed candidate make a mockery of any concept of shareholder democracy. You don't fucking say. Imagine a country where an election, quote, challenger has to pay for his campaign out of his own pocket while the incumbent uses the government's treasury. That is actually literally how it's done nowadays. That That's that's literally fu- fucking... All right. And this is a quote from the guy, from a person named Guy Adams, the managing director of GWA Capital Partners, a Los Angeles-based money manager. You'd say, what a banana republic this is. Dog... <laughs> I'm going to shut up. Read, Alex. Shareholder activists have proposed a host of reforms to give owners more say in board elections. At Verizon's April 2003 annual general meeting, a resolution called for the board to nominate twice as many candidates as there were seats, thereby giving voters a chance or a choice. Man, At Verizon's April 2003 annual general meeting, a resolution called for the board to nominate twice as many candidates as there were seats, thereby giving voters a choice. The resolution sponsor complained that the current system means that directors, quote, answer only to fellow directors. Verizon's proxy statement rejected the proposal, quote, Nothing in law requires that an election provide a choice of candidates or that shareholders have a right to nominate candidates. If there were competing candidates, Verizon added, quote, it would be difficult to predict which individuals would be elected. Need we say more? That was out of the book. I didn't say that. But seriously, need we say more? Right? If Verizon can't predict who is going to be elected, it, I mean, it stands to reason that Verizon wouldn't think it's in its best interest to to have uh, this unpredictability in the board. They want to control the outcome. Why? Because they want to be able to control shareholder value in the corporation. A similar proposal by the American Federation of States, County, and Municipal Employees would have independent board candidates placed on the ballot if owners of at least 3% of a company's shares nominate that person. Quote, this is an attempt to break up the system of coronation and make it a system, when shareholders want it, of, of, what? of a real election and a real choice, said Michael Zucker, the director of corporate affairs at AFSCME which tried to get the idea on six corporate proxies this year, including that of Citigroup. Legislation that makes it easy for shareholders to put nominees on proxy statements would easily rectify the situation. For example, if a block of shareholders representing 10 to 15% of all stock were unhappy with management nominees, they could make a nomination to appear on the management proxy statement. Such a law would not permit takeovers or hogtie the company, but shareholders would be able to nominate a board minority. Says Damon Silvers, Associate General Counsel for the AFL-CIO, any new legislation should be a, quote, vehicle for voice, not for control. Corporations need to take the lead here, and smart ones know it is in their interest to do so not just to avoid legislation, but also to engage shareholders and other stakeholders for success.
You would think so. I mean, just a side note, you, you, you would think so if we increase the communication and the interaction between all these stakeholders, right, from management on down, you would get better business. Why? Because you would have a better sense of what direction to push the organization. But, I mean, this, this implies, this involves programming the type of technological feature, a, a, a form of technological feature into the management structure that, that would facilitate, what is it called? Like, the, like a crowdsourcing or a crowdfunding of ideas and initiatives. Otherwise, you just have management pushing the company and the shareholders trying to steer using the rudder. But even then, it becomes, it becomes um, a sort of conflict of interest because management would like to push the company one way and shareholders another. Continuing, continuing. Uh, da, 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 where did it go? A recent study, there it is, a recent study found that investors pay more for well-governed companies. McKinsey and company surveyed more than 200 institutional investors who together manage approximately 3.25 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars in assets. They found that three quarters say board practices are at least as important to them as financial performance when they are considering evaluating companies for investment. Over 80% of investors say they would pay more for the shares of a well-governed company than for those of a poorly governed company. The premium that investors say they would be willing to pay for a well-governed company varies from 18% in the United States to 27% in Venezuela. Understanding this, open enterprises govern themselves differently from traditional corporations and invite shareholder engagement in a number of ways. And there are a number of points here, which I'll read for you. The first, they seek shareholder advice on board composition. Management meets with important institutional investors to discuss the board and listens to their suggestions on criteria for board members as well as specific nominations. Second, boards of open enterprises provide leadership on corporate values and on behalf of shareholders to enforce the elements of the new business integrity. That's honesty, accountability, consideration, and transparency. They periodically review whether the company behaves according to values. They ask, quote, what's the right thing to do rather than, quote, what's the expedient thing to do? Boards do their own integrity screening on everything from the selection of, the, of a CEO to the development of business strategies. Third point, boards in open enterprises understand that stakeholder value is part of shareholder value. At Johnson & Johnson, the shareholder comes last after customers, employees, and society. Says CEO Bill Weldon, quote, this is General Johnson's great genius. He understood that by putting the shareholder last, he was putting him first. Yeah, that sounds biblical. Fourth point here. Open enterprises also understand that the owners of wealth, the hundred million Americans who own stock, are stakeholders in the firm as customers, employees, partners, and members of society, raising their families, breathing the air, and hoping for a safe, 
peaceful, and prosperous world. That's, I mean, that sounds cute. I like that. <laughs> the next subheading, progressive, and it has a little colon here. Progressive, getting naked for fun and corporate. Sounds, um, I don't know, sounds a little too progressive. Shout out to OnlyFans, right? Progressive Insurance CEO Glenn Renwick is an inquisitive shareholder's dream come true. His philosophy is to tell shareholders as much as possible, as clearly and frequently as possible. The company's 2002 annual report entitled Bear All features avant-garde photos of a naked man. What the f- Progressive is the only Fortune 500 company to report operating results on a monthly basis. Some might argue that as an antidote for the short-term performance disease that has lately afflicted Ah, hold up. Some might argue that as an antidote for the short-term performance disease that has lately inflicted the market, inflicted or afflicted? I feel like, I don't know if that's the right use for that word. That's why I got thrown off. Let me repeat that one more time and read it through. Some might argue that as an antidote for the short-term performance disease that has lately inflicted the market, companies should be reporting less often than the traditional quarterly statement, not more often. Renwick counters that a steady stream of reliable information helps shareholders evaluate whether the company is meeting long-term strategies. Says Renwick, quote, why give monthly information? Because we have it. I view it as the owner's inf- information. I, I view it as the owner's information. When you have information, you should disclose it, good or bad, exactly as it is. Renwick said the first time he sat down to write a press release to explain why the company would not meet analyst projections, he was struck with the sense of absurdity. Quote, here I am trying to explain why I'm not going to make a target that I didn't set in the first place. Progressive issues no guidance whatsoever. Quote, I don't know what we will make next month. And I think it is foolhardy in our business to give guidance that people could or should rely on. More important, I view my job primarily as a strategist. I should be evaluated long-term on a body of work and collection of results rather than a quarterly or rather than a quarter by quarter estimate. I was going to say a quarterly estimate, but my brain shortcutted. (laughs) Continuing, this policy contributes to honesty and candor. The company has no need to make any month look better or worse because it has created expectations that it will simply tell it like it is. Quote, we don't make predictions and create expectations, so we have no problem sharing information. If it doesn't meet the expectation that someone else has created, that's not our concern. We're in it for the long term. Renwick continually tries to come up with useful, revealing information for the firm's monthly disclosure that would help anyone who is interested in analyzing the company. This includes the number of customer policies in force. Quote, some companies would want to keep that a secret, but I can't imagine why. Progressive Radically is also candid with shareholders regarding the amount of financial reserves it sets aside. Quote, in our business, reserving is the cookie jar relative of earnings management, end quote. 
Some suggest firms use reserves in their quarterly statements to increase or lower revenues and in doing so to smooth out earnings to correspond to street estimates. That's Wall Street estimates. Quote, we've gone exactly the opposite way. We say we've got to run our business every day trying to get as much right as possible. So we'll be happy to tell you what our reserve adjustments are on a frequent basis. This way, the reserves are set aside to meet business needs rather than to engineer financial results. Quote, with such a personal management philosophy, it's easy to share reserve information with shareholders. Renwick says it's liberating to run a company this way. Quote, once it's reported, it's over. I don't worry every month about whether we're going to make our earnings numbers. They are what they are, so I have no need to manipulate them. I'm in the mode of reporting reality as opposed to smoothing reality, and that enables us to focus on long-term strategy. Yo, this runway person sounds based. On the surface, being open pays off. It builds trust in management and contributes a brand of candor to the company's considerable success in the marketplace and solid performance for shareholders. Its share price has increased from $10 to $60 over the last decade. But transparency runs deeper. It's parts of the company's corporate character. Says Runwick, quote, in insurance, the foundation of success is trust. To be trusted, you need integrity and you need to be open. It's fun to manage in an environment where you are always sharing what you know. It's part of who we are. I agree. I think if you share the right kind of information and are constantly sharing it frequently, then your partners, your business partners, your shareholders, essentially, the ones who are capitalizing you, who are supporting you, who stand behind you and your company, your stock, then the trust, the, the mutual trust that that creates, uh, it, it's on par with, with humanizing the corporation, really. It, it, it really is. It creates a reputation. It creates a sense of rapport between what is the legal person and a society of legal persons. And that, that filters on down through organizational culture, community culture, it's communities in general. I mean, <laughs> we're supposed to be the United States, right? Not, not just the corporate states, not just the corporate states, but... What can you say? It's the corporate world order. And that brings chapter eight to a close. If you enjoyed the book so far, go ahead and give us a like, a subscribe, I guess. You can share it with friends. It's a, it's a free audio book. I'm not charging anything for this. We don't. The Corporate Cowboys podcast claims no rights to this, just the opportunity. We claim the opportunity to read it to you and comment on it. My name is Alex, and I've been reading to you the Naked Corporation, How the Age of Transparency Will Revolutionize Business by Don Tapscott and David T. Cole. Join us next time as we continue reading Chapter 9. Have yourselves a great one.